passage. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 through 32. <clears throat> submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. The word of the Lord. You know, it kind of struck me this morning, um, the last time that uh, Pastor Ken had asked me to, to share uh, here was probably about 16 or 17 months ago. And uh, it was funny because as I was getting prepared and kind of getting ready that morning, uh, Beth came to me and she told me that she was expecting um, child number four. And so uh, it, really quite the distraction that morning, by the way. Um, <laughs> Regardless, this morning I found myself skulking around the house in fear that 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 would happen again. (laughs) I was quite grateful that it didn't. (laughs) You know, people often ask me if family mediation is is a little bit like family or or marriage counseling. It's actually two completely different different things. As a mediator, my job is very different than that of a counselor. See, the counselor's job is to provide a couple with tools and resources to grow and at times salvage a difficult marriage. I, on the other hand, am working with people who no longer wish to be a couple. And I'm working with people who've come and they've made some of the difficult decisions and uh, now they're looking at it and saying we just need to work out some of the, the details as we end our, our marriage. And so when people come to see me, oftentimes they're paralyzed by betrayal or they're paralyzed by guilt or shame. Uh, sometimes they're, they're overwhelmed with anger and fear, uh, loneliness. I see a desire for revenge. Uh, To be honest, I see pretty much any yucky feeling that you could ever imagine. Other times when people come in to see me, they're quite ambivalent. And they they don't have their heads kind of wrapped around the grief and the loss and pain as their marriages are coming to an end. Regardless, I'm typically spending time with people at one of the worst moments of their lives. And I often see people at their absolute worst. I meet with the separating spouses. And uh, as a mediator, I help them identify, I help them refine, and I help them redefine their financial and personal expectations of each other so that when they go and they sit down with two separate lawyers, they have shared priorities and shared expectations of each other. 
Now, that's important because many times these are parents who have children together and they, they need to find a way to work together and to resolve certain expectations so that they can get on with that important business of parenting their children. Regardless, I'm often asked by people, why is it that marriages tend to fail? What's going on in our country that we look and we see the divorce rate is skyrocketing? What, what's happening? I also have the opportunity to ask a lot of people what they think. Why is it that marriages fail? What's going on? And I hear a lot of theories. And some people suggest that marriages tend to fail because of money. Reasonable. Others suggest marriages fail because of differences in parenting styles. I hear, I hear others say that marriage fails because one or both spouses work too much. I even hear people come into my office and they say to me, you know what, I, I don't know why our marriage failed. We just fell out of love with each other. But you know, I'm, I'm actually not convinced that any of these reasons will give us an adequate understanding as to why the divorce rate is climbing. And I don't think they give us a reason as to why so many marriages are breaking down. I think they're surface issues. And if we really want to understand what's going on, we need to kind of dig below the surface. But I also think if we're going to truly understand why marriages fail to work, we need to understand what it is that God intended when he designed marriage in the very first place. And so this morning I want us to take a look at the passage that Pastor Norb read to us uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to, to 32. And here in this passage, Paul shares with us, the Apostle Paul shares with us God's purpose and his plan for marriage. And he shares with us how we as spouses can discover and experience the life of Christ and the fullness of joy through our marriage. And so this morning, we're going to take that few moments and, and look at this passage in order to discover God's plan to, first of all, draw our hidden insecurities and our beliefs to the surface. And then secondly, to draw forward his image and his likeness and his character through our spouses. You know, if my marriage is going to do what it's supposed to do, it's going to really end up uh, drawing forward and revealing what's going on deep inside of me. It's, it's going to surface all of the hidden insecurities that are in here. My marriage, if it's doing what it's supposed to, is going to eventually draw forward the sin that I try to keep buried within me. But do you know what else it's going to do? It's going to bring forward all of my dreams. And it's going to bring forward my ambitions um, that I assumed nobody would ever understand or nobody would ever see. Ultimately, my marriage is going to expose the best in who I am, but it's also going to expose the worst of who I am. When the worst is exposed, I then have to decide for myself, what am I going to do with this mess that's now sitting on the surface? And my reaction to the exposure of that mess is either going to make or break my marriage. Now, let me give you an example as, as to what I mean by, by my reaction will either make or break my marriage. Let's say I were to wake up in the morning and uh, I were to crawl out of bed and I were to go and take a look in the mirror. And uh, I don't like what I see. Perhaps my hair is a mess. 
And, and I got that drool kind of hanging off my chin. I haven't shaved and those pillow lines were across my face. By the way, that doesn't ever happen. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, it's just perfect, right? Um, regardless, sometimes when I look in the mirror, I have to make a decision. How am I going to respond to what I see? And in my experience, there are really three responses that we can come up with. And the first possible response is, I look in the mirror, I don't like what I see, so I take that mirror off the wall and I stick it in the closet so that I don't have to look at it anymore. It's, it's not that I like my messy hair, or I don't care if people see me like this, because I, I really do care. It's just that when I look at it, it's too hard and it's too difficult to deal with first thing in the morning. And so I I make the decision, I'm just going to put it away so that I don't have to look at it. I take the mirror off the wall. It's just easier than fixing the problem. Perhaps I assume that those pillow lines are eventually going to disappear, which they usually do. Or I I assume that that crazy bedhead hair will settle into place so that no one will ever see the problem. Unfortunately, the problem doesn't go away, does it? I just don't have to look at it anymore. So I I go to my office, I go to work, do whatever. Maybe I go for lunch, I come home, and I still look the same as I did first thing in the morning when I rolled out out of bed. Why? I didn't really deal with the problem. I just took the mirror off the wall and put it in the closet. Do you know, some marriages end with a bang, and others end with a whimper. Those that tend to end with a bang or a result of a betrayal of some trust, where an event or a series of events occurred, and the level of mistrust and animosity becomes unbearable for both spouses. However, when a marriage ends with a whimper, The spouses usually come in and they sit down with me and they say to me, you know what, we still want to be friends. We're still good friends with each other. We get along, but we're more roommates than anything else. We we fell out of love. They aren't angry. They're not fighting with each other. They just don't love each other anymore. When I hear this, it actually tells me something about their marriage, doesn't it? It also tells me how they're going to respond to the mirror. Typically, these are the kind of people who take the mirror off the wall and they stick it in the closet without brushing their hair and without dealing with the issues. There isn't a lot of conflict. Why? Because they're not dealing with anything. But you know what else is missing? The fullness of their marriage and the joy that comes from experiencing that that life together. It didn't end with a bang, but it ended with a whimper. So that's the first possible response to what I see in the mirror. Possibility number two is I look in the mirror and I I don't like what I see, and I'm absolutely shocked. This can't be true. How can this be true? I don't look this bad. So what do I do? I get out a hammer and I smash the mirror. It's not my fault that I look bad. It's the mirror's fault. I can't accept responsibility for for what happened, so I'm going to blame the mirror. I'm going to blame something else or someone else. You know, it's interesting. I I oftentimes will meet with separating spouses and uh, one-on-one, and I'll take a little bit of time and I'll say to them, so can you tell me 
what's brought you to this place? What's, what's kind of brought you to this point in your relationship? And uh, oftentimes I'll hear one of them say, and of course these are one-on-one conversations, I'll hear one of them say to me, you know what, my, my spouse was overly critical, they were controlling, um, they, they didn't love me, um, and, and I'll hear any number of reasons. And then I'll sit down with the other spouse, and I'll look at them and I'll say, so can you tell me what happened that drew your marriage to an end? And I'll hear the answer, well, my spouse had an affair. Hmm. Sometimes, as I'm listening to them tell their stories, I wonder if I'm talking to the same couple. But you know, those who break the mirror have one thing in common. It's always the other spouse's fault. It's always their fault that they brought me to this point. They've been hurt, and they focus on the wrongs that have been committed against them. Now, it's my experience that these spouses tend to want justice, right? They want somebody to come in and bang on the table and say, yeah, you've been hurt, you've been wronged. But they don't want accountability. They, they tend not to want somebody to sit there and look and say, yeah, no, I understand that you've been hurt and you've been wronged and, and that's, that's horrible. But what about you? What was your role? How do you fit in all of this? They've been hurt. They've been betrayed. They're mired in pain and they want someone to pay. And when questioned about their role, they blame someone else. I want justice, but I don't want accountability. I, I want to be... I I want payback, but I don't want to be held responsible for my own actions. Now, this spouse looked in the mirror, and they didn't like what they saw. And rather than changing themselves, they tried to change their spouse. Now, just imagine for a moment that I wake up in the morning, and I look in the mirror, and I don't like what I see, and so I I yell across the, 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 the house to Beth, and I say, Beth, I need you to come in here. You've got to brush your hair. I don't like what I see when I look at my own hair, right? My hair is still messy. I get angrier. It sounds absurd when I put it that way, doesn't it? However, psychologists will tell us that when we can't handle the truth about ourselves, when we look inside and we see something that we really don't like and we really can't understand it, it's very difficult to accept responsibility for that. And so my instant reaction, my first response, is generally to turn and blame somebody else. It's their fault. It's their problem. It's unsatisfying, however, because it doesn't deal with the core issues. So those are the first two responses. We can put the mirror away. We can hide it in the closet and not look at it. Possibility number two is we can break the mirror. And possibility number three is we get out the hairbrush and we brush our hair. In other words, I recognize that there's a problem that only I can correct and I fix it. When God designed marriage, he intended your marriage, my marriage, to be the mirror in which we discover our strengths and our weaknesses. Our spouses, they reflect back to us the things that make us strong and beautiful. But you know what? They also reflect back to us the ugliness that lies deep inside of us. And it's in marriage that we see the ugliness of life 
as well as the beauty of who we were made to become. And a marriage will thrive when a man and a woman come together in order to build and strengthen each other. A marriage will thrive when we look at each other and we show our cards and we say, I I need you to see me for who I am. A marriage will thrive when that spouse looks at us and goes, you know what, I'm going to accept and I'm going to love you in spite of what I see. It's unconditional. Marriage will prosper when we come together and are able to look beyond the weaknesses of our partners in order to celebrate the work of God that's going on in their lives. And we help and love them as they see the mess and as they deal with it themselves. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives to submit to your husband as to the Lord. Do you know what's interesting? When I talk to people about this passage, we often focus on that first phrase, or that second phrase rather, wives submit to your husbands. And we forget about the very first part of that sentence that says, actually it's the previous sentence that says, submit to one another. Therefore, if it's the wife's job to submit to her husband, as it says in verse 22, then it's also the husband's responsibility to submit to his wife, as it says in verse 21. It's not about one spouse or the other. It's about both. It's about mutually coming together to submit. Last week was Victoria Day, so we can talk a little bit about the monarchy. Um, shortly after their marriage, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but shortly after their marriage, Prince Albert and Queen Victoria had their very first fight. Now, I'm not sure what the fight was over. It could be over who burnt the chicken or whether or not this German prince was going to have to put the toilet seat down in Buckingham Palace. I I really have no idea. Um, Regardless of the reason... Prince Albert got up from his seat at the dinner table and he stormed out of the room and he slammed the door of his private apartment and he locked himself away. And Queen Victoria was absolutely livid by this and she stormed out and followed him and she banged on the door yelling until Albert, Prince Albert, will be polite, Prince Albert called out, Who's there? Right. Queen Victoria answered to him, it's the Queen of England, and she demands, and I'm not going to do it in an accent, and she demands that you immediately let her into this room. There was no response. And Prince Albert did not unlock the door. He went back to his bed and he lay down. She began pounding on the door again, yelling, let me in. And once again, Albert responds, Who's there? Once again, he gets the same answer. This is the Queen of England, and I demand entrance right now. And once again, he returned to his bed and he lay down. She continues banging on the door for several more moments. And then after a few moments, she realized she wasn't getting anywhere and she was losing this battle. And so she rested her head on the door for just a a few moments, and then she quietly tapped, and she waited for a response. And then there was this sheepish voice coming from the apartment that said, Who's there? This time, 
She answered, Albert, it's your wife. And I'd like to come in and talk. At that point, her husband opened the door and let her in, and presumably they resolved their differences. Now, I don't know if there's any truth to that story. I I really don't. But it does remind us that there's a difference between obedience and demanding obedience and submission and willingly submitting ourselves to our spouse. When obedience was demanded, the prince got his back up against the wall, and he went and laid back down in his own bed. However, when the queen stopped and with humility she came to the door and submitted herself to her husband, Philip mutually submitted himself to his wife and he opened the door to her. The marriage that's primarily focused on obedience to a strict code of conduct is typically also focused on image and how we're going to look to other people, including our spouse. In other words, I'm not focused on doing what's right. I'm focused on looking as to what's right. And so perhaps in that circumstance with the queen and Philip, she looked at it and went, I'm the queen. How is it going to look to my subjects if my own husband won't even obey me? I need him to obey me. Why? So that I look good in front of somebody else. Maybe we might look and go, company is coming over. And I don't want them to see what a mess my house is. So I'm going to take everything and I'm going to throw it in the basement storage room. I don't clean the mess. I just move it. I don't deal with the issue. I just cover it up. And as a result, I'm oblivious to the deeper issues that are trying to surface themselves in my marriage. We try to maintain image We try to maintain image in how we look rather than experiencing the truth. This marriage, that type of marriage, will never have the opportunity to to thrive. Both spouses are afraid at that point to look in the mirror. They're afraid of what they're going to see. Why? Because the cost of failure, the cost of not looking good enough is just too great and I can't take that risk. Someone might just realize that I'm not as strong as I, as I like to look. Do you know, when I'm protected and guarded, I'm not going to speak up. When I'm trying to protect my image, I'm not going to share how God is challenging me or shaping me into the person he wants me to be. When I'm protected and guarded and when I'm focused on looking strong so that I can maintain control over my, sp- my life, I'm afraid to invite my spouse to the throne of grace with me because I don't know if they're still going to love me when they see who I really am. I'm afraid to be seen as weak and I miss out on God moving through my spouse. Submission, on the other hand, ensures that our spouse experiences the unconditional love and acceptance that comes as we lives trying to understand everything we can about our spouse tick and then as we learn to anticipate how our spouse is going to respond to a variety of circumstances. Do you know, when I was a pastor a few years back, I used to sit down and I'd map out wedding services with couples and they would be preparing for that, that big day. And I would often explain to them, you know, when we sit down and do your wedding ceremony, there's only one ceremony. 
However, there are going to be two components to the ceremony. The first is, is the spiritual component, of course, but the second is the legal. That legal component is where your marriage is solemnized in the eyes of the law. And as spouses, they sit down at a pretty little table and they sign a pen. And um, at the moment that the pastor puts those papers into the mailbox, you've actually entered a very complicated legal contract with your spouse. And it, it's complicated because it doesn't tell us enough on the page. This legal contract isn't, isn't complicated because of what it says. It's complicated because of what it doesn't say. When we look at the page, there's a line for the bride and the groom to fill out their place of birth, and then they sign. There's a line for one or two witnesses, actually it's two witnesses to sign, and a pastor to sign. And that's all. It's, it's an open-ended agreement that makes the assumption that the husband and wife are going to agree on most things, and if they can't, they're going to figure it out. It's a blank page, and you're contractually obligated to follow through on these undefined terms and conditions of the contract. What makes it really complicated is what it doesn't say. See, it doesn't say, once you sign this, what's yours is now mine. And what's mine is now yours. When you sign it, it doesn't come out and explicitly say that if one partner fails to pay their taxes for the next seven or eight years, you're on the hook for it. It doesn't come out and say that, um, that, um, that, that your finances are now in, in, inseparable from each other. It leaves all of that alone. And there are huge financial considerations and consequences when we violate the terms of this unwritten agreement. Right? We broke the contract. Well, that's the legal contract. There's also a spiritual one or a personal one between the bride and the groom. When we stand with our bride and our groom and we slide that ring on their finger we enter into a very similar contract with our new spouse. And much like the legal one, it's also blank. There isn't a lot of detail on that page. When we draft our marriage contract, we assume that our new husband or our new wife understands what they're getting into. The spiritual, personal contract is just as complicated for the same reasons as the legal one. We assume they fully understand the unwritten and unspoken expectations of them, or in other words, the terms and the conditions of what I like to call the marriage contract. And every person who enters into a marriage will enter into that marriage with a set of unwritten, unspoken expectations of their spouse. Now, some of these unwritten, unspoken expectations early on in a marriage may seem to be very simple and fairly insignificant. We might look at it and say, well, this is how the laundry is folded. Or we might, it might be regarding who's going to wash dishes after supper. Early on, these unwritten, unspoken expectations of the marriage contract are, are merely little irritants that, that may feel insurmountable. But you know what? The longer our marriage goes on, the more substantive 
and the deeper these conditions and, and terms have the ability to become. And they tend to show up out of absolutely nowhere, and they'll strike right through the very heart of a marriage. You know, it's, it's not that uncommon for people to come into my office, and they tell me that when they very first met, when they first got together and fell in love, their spouse was energetic and adventurous, and they loved that about them. However, over time, their enthusiasm for life began to dwindle. And, and now that spouse just wants to sit at home and, and, and stay with the kids and watch TV. What's their unwritten, unspoken expectation? What's that clause in the marriage contract? Well, it might just be that their spouse will have the same energy level at 50 that they did at 21. Right? This unwritten, unspoken, contractual item it might have been a non-negotiable item that's remained buried for more than 25 years. And because it's unwritten and unspoken, he or she doesn't know how to respond to the violation of that contract. Was it wrong that the spouse slowed down? Probably not. In fact, I kind of doubt it. But why is their marriage breaking down? Well, when they looked in the mirror, they took it off the wall and they stuck it in the closet, and they've now drifted apart for a number of years, and their marriage is ending with a whimper. For the first number of years of our marriage, Beth and I were unable to have children. In fact, at one point, our doctor came to us and said, you know, there is about a 10% chance that you will ever have one child, and if you have an, one child, there's an even less likelihood that you're going to have another one. They're going to be an only child. Now, for those who know my kids, you know that we proved that doctor wrong, not just once, not just twice, not three times, but four times. Regardless, that day the doctor pulled me aside, and the doctor gave me some incredibly good advice. He said, he sat me down and he explained to me that men and women experience infertility very differently. He said, for a woman, this can be a devastating attack on her identity, a devastating attack on who she is. Whereas sometimes men, he, he went on to say, sometimes as men, we look at this and go, hmm, I guess that means I can afford a new snowmobile. <laughs> Do you know, I, I, I don't know if I entirely agreed with this assessment. I, I didn't want a snowmobile at the time, and I still don't. However, I will agree that Beth and I responded to that news very differently. And how, and, and his advice really gave me a lot of insight into who she was, and, and it, it helped me as I attempted to step out of my own perspective and to see life from the, from the view of my wife's. With this advice, that doctor gave me insight into Beth's marriage contract, didn't he? He gave me an understanding of her unwritten, unspoken expectations of my marriage, but more importantly, her unwritten, unspoken expectations of me. By discovering the terms of her contract, I discovered how important motherhood was going to be to her, and I was able to, to hear the desires of her heart. But you know what's interesting? Once we had kids... Our marriage contracts, both of them, shifted, and they changed. Beth's expectations of me changed. Will my husband ever come home from work? 
Is he going to sit at the office all day and all night while I'm left to care for the kids? The contract shifted. It changes. But you know what? So did mine. It always does. Why? Because your marriage contract, my marriage contract, they're living, breathing documents. And therefore, I can't just sit down one time, one day, define all the terms of my marriage contract and then walk away. Throughout life, the contract changes and it adapts to circumstances and the terms of the unwritten, unspoken expectations become less clear and they become more and more difficult to wrap our heads around. As such, when the terms are violated, the pain becomes that much more significant. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Once a married couple has had a few disagreements, and if they can learn to really listen to each other during a conflict, and if they can look at each other and say, I want to understand the unwritten, unspoken expectations that you have of me as your partner, we learn more about our spouse and we uncover their marriage contracts, including their uncovered priorities, maybe their undisclosed values, their beliefs, their expectations, their fears, their insecurities, but also their desires for a godly life. Your marriage contract will surface all of the good and bad in our spouses, as well as in ourselves. God designed this marriage contract to bring us closer together as we discover the person that's hidden beneath the surface. Our marriage contract is what reflects the sin and the shame from our spouses' lives into our own lives, but it's also what reflects the character and the person of Jesus Christ as I grow deeper in my walk and my understanding of who he is. When we discover our spouse's contract, we discover their gifts, we discover their life's calling, we discover their passions, and we're more effectively able to meet their needs. In spite of the fact that it's a blank contract, it's likely one of the most important documents of your life. It teaches us a lot, doesn't it? Maybe your spouse makes a comment to you, and inside you cringe. Why? What, what was it about that statement or that comment that sparked this response in who I am? Why is it that when my spouse talks to a friend about what they're going through, we have issues with what they've said to their friend? Well, maybe it's because I'm afraid that she's going to surface an issue I'm not prepared to deal with. Maybe we watch our spouse interact with our children and I think that he or she should do things very differently. Why? Well, maybe because I have an unspoken goal for my children that's really quite positive, but I don't even understand it yet. I can't put my finger on it. But my spouse is interfering with that goal. Perhaps if it were spoken and understood, my spouse would be excited about that goal and get on board with it. The marriage contract doesn't just surface the negative but also the positive. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul is praying for the church in Philippi, and he says, I am certain that God 
who began a good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. The Holy Spirit is constantly at work within our lives. He's drawing out the character and the person of Jesus Christ. And he who began a good good work will continue to define and refine our character by drawing out those unwritten, unspoken expectations. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, Paul writes, For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own body. Do you know when Paul uses that word and he says that we are to present her to himself, the word present implies that we show up with our beautiful bride who is radiant and glowing with pride. And you know what? We get to show her off. Why is she beautiful and radiant? She's been given the opportunity to experience the fullness of who she was made to be. She's given the opportunity to experience the fullness of God's creation in her through the love of her spouse. And she gets to be a shining reflection of the image of God that was imprinted on her soul. Paul invites us to partner with the Holy Spirit who's working in our spouse. God surfaces an issue. He surfaces a hidden desire, maybe an insecurity. He surfaces them so that they can be faced openly and honestly. As we partner with the Holy Spirit, we discover the God-given desires and dreams of our spouse that may have been lost along the way. And we find ways to support those dreams so that the image of God might be more fully realized in their life. As a husband, my job is to make my spouse as beautiful and as successful as possible. How do I do it? I partner with the Holy Spirit. He draws out. He surfaces. I respond. I listen. I react. I can't do this if all I'm doing is sitting and looking at a sink full of dirty dishes and resenting my spouse for not doing their share of the household chores. In Ephesians 5.27, Paul tells us that Jesus wants to present the church to himself as radiant, without stain, and without blemish. He's building his church to be a reflection of God in humanity. And he's doing this in a way that's never before been comprehended. This is God's desire for the church, right? It's also his desire and his passion for the family. Jesus builds his church, not as a dictator who uses force and exerts power or guilt to get his way, but through sacrifice. In the same way, in family, there is a unique mystical union between husband and wife that needs to be built on emotion, on mutual love and sacrifice in order to see the beauty of God develop and grow in relationship. Unfortunately, many marriages are submersed in pain 
because we assume that when our spouse violates the unwritten, unspoken expectations or rules, there's something wrong with our marriage. And so we either retreat and hide from, or we launch out and try to hurt the spouse. The truth is, we live in a sinful world, and by its very nature, marriage leaves us vulnerable to the deep wounds. And if these wounds continue to grow, if I continue to ignore the mirror or break the mirror, I'm going to lose sight of what God is trying to do in my marriage. What's the most common cause for marriage breakdown? Money? Probably not. It's a surface issue. Parenting issues? Again, I think that points us to something. The most common cause for marriage breakdown is actually much deeper. I wake up in the morning. I look at my hair in the mirror. It's a mess. And rather than brushing my hair, I take the mirror and I hide it in the closet. Or I blame the mirror and I smash it. What's the most common cause for marriage breakdown today? I'm going to tell you this. It's a bad hair day. The question is not whether or not your marriage will surface the deeply rooted insecurities. The question is not whether your marriage will surface the deeply rooted hurts, the sins, the dreams, the ambitions, the goals. The question isn't whether or not your godly desires are going to show themselves in some way. The question is, how are you going to respond when they're surfaced? Are you going to hide it? Are you going to bury it? Are you going to blame somebody else? Or are you going to pull out the hairbrush and deal with it? 